Sorry I annoyed you with my friendship. podcast is what's in the box my name is graham bryant and i'm keeping my despair to myself and pushing it down like and who do i have with me here today i'm amber woodward and i'm only here to return graham's fingers and this is a podcast you can listen to at normal speed amber what have we been up to who cares no time we are doing a new format of a podcast where we only talk about one movie and what movie are we talking about today, Amber? Uh, today we are talking about the Banshees of Inishirin. We are following up our McDonough episode, which is by far our most popular episode. Um, I think it just broke 100 listens. So if you haven't listened to that episode, you should probably go give it a listen, maybe play it at one and a half times speed. And or if you haven't listened to it in a little while, go back and listen to it again. So you have all the details that kind of frame what we're discussing today. Mm. Banshees of Inishirin is probably going to get a Best Picture nomination. Oh, most definitely. I wouldn't be surprised, especially with the success of Three Billboards Mm -hmm. and all the other awards buzz that the movie has been getting lately. And also, the film is finally on HBO Max. You could go see it in a theater if you wanted to, but it's easy to stream right from your home. And I think, actually, it's a pretty nice film to watch at home Mm -hmm. that you don't necessarily have to see it on a bigger screen, so... Yeah, you can check it out now. Go watch it on HBO Max right now, and then come back and listen to the rest of this episode. So, Amber, what are your initial thoughts of the movie we saw, like, two months ago? (laughs) I really liked it. I thought it was kind of a departure from, say, like, In Bruges or Seven Psychopaths, Mm -hmm. because it's kind of more understated, and it reminds me a little bit more of his plays than yes. uh, some of his other movies, but I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really effective story, and it's very fun, I think, to explain the plot to people who like don't really know a lot about McDonough. Well, how, how would you, you like, explain the plot? Um, I think what I told my mom was it's about two guys, and one of them decides not to be friends with the other anymore. Mm and threatens that he will start cutting off his fingers if the other person keeps contacting him. And uh, fingers are lost. Oh, see, that's giving away way too much information. Oh, I'm sorry. By the way, like, we're... uh, Uh, Spoilers! Yeah, by the way, uh, this is a spoiler podcast, so do keep that in mind. The way I had described it was in an island off the coast of Ireland... In a town with only one church and one pub, one man tells another that he doesn't want to be friends with him anymore. And then someone's like, oh, and then what happens? No, that's it. That's kind of the instigating thing, and it carries the entire plot of the film, is that decision. And I remember my partner, she asked... And it's like, oh, but does he cut off his fingers? And I just said, the shears are used. <laughs> I will say that. I feel like it's a suspenseful thing with mm-hmm. McDonough. That is he going to do the thing he threatened? Sure. Is it just a red herring? What's actually going to happen? Uh, but yes, uh, we have a nine-fingered man mm-hmm. for a certain <laughs> portion of the film. To be fair, when I explain movies to my family, I want to emphasize the weirdest 
parts possible because that's how I draw them in. Yeah. It's like Tatan, a woman has a sex with <laughs> a woman has sex with a car. Right. And it's the least important part of the movie. No, the the least important part of that movie is that she's a serial killer. True. Um anyways. <laughs> yeah, I thought that the film was very subdued. It's mm-hmm. definitely like you said one of his more toned down works that focuses a lot on emotion there's the least i think bigotry in anything he's written and i think it's one of the lesser violent things Mm -hmm. that he's ever written as well i just i remember i think when i first saw it i was in such a similar state to the characters at the end of the movie that i just felt I, I felt like he was hitting all very relatable, understandable mm, points, and yeah. that's why I wasn't... It's why I wasn't, like, immediately revved up to, like, dissect it and take everything apart, mm-hmm. because I was like, well, yeah, that just... It, it resonated with right. me a lot. Do you think anything about this film works better than his other works? Um, That's a tough one. Well, the reason I ask is mm-hmm. that... It feels like the reception to this film, the things that people are saying are the things that I've seen in his works Mm -hmm. the whole time, with the exception of maybe Seven Psychopaths. But people are talking about what an understanding look this is at his characters and how Mm -hmm. they hint at a deep kind of sadness, but understanding Mm -hmm. and love for one Mm -hmm. another. And I'm like, that's how I feel about Three Billboards. But other people describe Three Billboards as a ugly and cynical Mm. movie. And I'm like, so is this. Like, this movie is just sad almost the entire time. But people like this one. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if it has to do with a American-centric I wonder if it perspective. does. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, there's more distance, so now I'm able to see that. Mm-hmm. Or I don't. Or maybe it was too politically charged with the subject matter. I'm not right. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the temporal remove also, the fact that this mm-hmm. takes place in the past. And almost I, 100 years ago right. now. Yeah, yeah, almost exactly. I think also it's just a little bit more austere as a film. Like, it okay. is more mm, it's more spartan it's more like what do you mean by that i i mean like i think it's more spartan as a film because it has sort of less kind of decoration and little things kind of piled on it's it's very sober and very like dour and like the i think just in the filmography and the costumes, you see a lot of this, like, very, like, heavy colors, straight lines, like, these things that are very, I would say, minimalist, mm-hmm. almost. There are a lot of beautiful things, though, for a film about ugliness mm-hmm. and despair, because, like, somebody, I was watching it with a group the other day, and somebody was pointing out uh, Colin Farrell's, like, sweaters Mm -hmm. that he wears in several scenes she was like i would wear that like Mm -hmm. that just looks Mm -hmm. so good like they when he's a character who's not supposed to be like good looking why does he still give off that kind of charm Mm -hmm. also like i'm just thinking of the opening shot with the rainbow and the happy music and how green everything looks Mm -hmm. and for a film that displays a lot of ugliness about 
this town, it's somehow still a film that makes you want to visit Ireland, mm-hmm. despite the fact that, like, everybody's miserable and bored and wants to be anywhere but there. And this is McDonough's first film set in Ireland, too. Finally, yeah. Right. All of his plays almost take place in I- Ireland, but this is the first film he's finally shot in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And I think that was very significant for... Colin Farrell, I remember him saying, and the other actor. Brendan Gleeson. Brendan Gleeson. I think it was a unique opportunity for them to reunite, like both in terms of their work, but also to kind of reunite with being in Ireland and this sort of spiritual sense of homecoming Mm -hmm. in this film that is about being in one's home and trying to understand what that means to yourself and to others very interesting yeah amber could you give us a quick recap on who martin mcdonough is for people who might not remember sure he's an irish slash british playwright and this is part of a sort of more or less trilogy yeah right it's a thematic trilogy Mm -hmm. that he refers to as the aaron islands trilogy right which consisted of three scripts that he wrote One was called The Cripple of Inishman, the second was called The Lieutenant of Inishmore, and the third was called The Banshees of Inishir, but that was the only play that he never fully published from that period in his life because, to quote him, it was no good. So, in the last podcast I had said it was The Banshees of Inishir, it is not. The Banshees of Inishir is a script we've never seen. This version is called The Banshees of Inishirin, which is a film that is probably one of his best works. Mm-hmm. But he has created three other films, uh, three other feature films, Correct. I should say, uh, which would be In Bruges, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing's Missouri, mm-hmm. and Seven Psychopaths. He is dating the lovely Phoebe Waller-Bridges. Right. uh, Which we found out in a recent interview he did with Taylor Swift, of all people. I know. Um, (laughs) So don't go read that. That's a pretty weird piece. They're framing her to be a director, and there's not much illuminated about Martin himself in the interview. He praises her a lot, but it's hard to say how much of that is like, hey, you're my girlfriend's friend. Right. Versus, hey, you did some art. Exactly. You know? Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> if you're interested in learning ma- more about McDonough, you should go listen to our show again, maybe two or three times. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, he, I think he's a very interesting guy. He sort of has shifted from doing plays to moving into screenplays and directing. Yes. He's got on record as saying that he feels that... He has to be the director of his stories Mm -hmm. because he wants to have that kind of creative control over the vision of what he's producing as opposed to like just writing a screenplay and giving it to another director. Well, and also as a film director, as opposed to a playwright, there are different levels of control you can have. As a playwright, when a director has to take a script that they did not write, they're not allowed to change one single word. As a director, you don't have that implicitly baked into the DNA of it, so you can allow your actors to do more with the text. So he has more oversight over it, but he has less like structural integrity as he does with a stage play, which maybe that's a good thing mm-hmm. uh, in the case of his films, because overall, 
as a longtime fan of his plays, seeing this one has kind of confirmed my suspicion that his screenplays are so much stronger than his stage plays, and they feel a lot more alive. So, Graham, you did some research about the setting of Banshees of Inishirin. Correct. So, a little bit of background. I studied Irish 20th century theater when I was an undergrad, so I had some familiarity with the political background of Ireland during this period, but I actually didn't know a lot about the Irish Civil War, which is specifically the event that is the backdrop for this film, and pretty much directly what McDonough is talking about in the events of the movie. A little bit of a historical background here. Ireland doesn't like Britain. Some parts of Ireland like Britain. It's called Northern Ireland. But there's a large portion of Ireland that doesn't want to have anything to do with England. So there was a war that was fought by the Irish Republican Army for independence from Ireland, and they actually won that war in 1921 because England mistakenly thought that Ireland was much stronger than they were when actually their forces were dwindling. So it was to their benefit that England actually surrendered. So after England surrendered, there was a negotiation of the Irish-Anglo Treaty. Now, the terms of this treaty are as follows. The Irish Republic would be required to swear an oath of loyalty to the crown. Certain key ports in the Irish Republic would be retained by Britain. Now, Northern Ireland is already a thing. This is not a division between Northern Ireland and Central Ireland. Northern Ireland was made a territory in 1920, a year before the surrender happened. So as part of this treaty, if that territory wanted to opt out of being independent from Britain, they were allowed to do so. This is why they are part of the UK, whereas Ireland is not. The terms of this treaty upset a lot of the boys who just fought a war that had over 2,000 casualties. And then there was a schism that formed between the Irish Republic, and that was the pro-treaty members, which were now referred to as the Provisional Government and eventually the Irish Free State or the Irish National Army. And then there were anti-treaty members that were still referred to as the IRA or Republicans. The division ultimately culminated in the occupation of the four courts in Dublin by the IRA. The four courts is essentially the building that houses the Supreme Court, a lot of those seats, and a lot of the judicial structure there. In 1922, as they were occupying the four courts, there was a lot of pressure from Britain to the Irish Free State to, quote, quell the rebels. And eventually this just resulted in a free state general ordering artillery strikes on the four courts building. So the building was set ablaze, a lot of casualties happened, and this was referred to as the Battle of Dublin and officially the start of the Irish Civil War. This war did not last a long time because the IRA was vastly outnumbered and outgunned by the free state. The free state had control of so many larger territories. They had artillery, weaponry, and the IRA mostly resulted to guerrilla warfare similar to what they had done during the Irish War of Independence. So it wasn't long before they were basically thinned out because they had no official authority over any territory. So the war ended officially in May of 1923. This is notable because the movie points out 
that the year is 1923 and the date is April 1st. The movie takes place during the final moments of the Irish Civil War. Mm. And so by the end of the movie, they, they discuss how the war is finally winding down. This is also notable because I was mistaken that this was a factional division that we see a lot of in Irish stories because of the troubles between Protestants and Catholics or Unionists and Nationalists. It's not that. It's actually much more tragic and much more sad. These are brothers who fought on the same side for the same war that were divided over matters of pride and personal feelings. These were literally generals and men who fought alongside each other, ordering assassinations and burning down each other's homes, which really highlights the sadness that Martin McDonough explores in this story. Wow. Yeah, that's very intense. Yeah, right? On that note, I think now we are in the right mood to talk about Mm. this film on that somber lesson. And so some themes and ideas that I thought we could explore with this text. I got the screenplay from a bookstore in England. They shipped it over. I love it. Highly recommend having it. One of the central ideas, of course, around the movie and that a lot of people start talking about when they leave the movie is friendship. Or more accurately, the film is not about friendship itself, but rather the absence or the difficulty in navigating adult relationships. And Mm -hmm. I wonder, do you have any thoughts about that? It's definitely a movie, I think, about how you kind of navigate the space between pursuing your own development and pursuing... Mm -hmm philosophical ideas within your life experience versus your interactions with other people Mm -hmm. and how you navigate this space of existing with others while also trying to find the most true version of yourself Mm -hmm. and how that can be kind of difficult. There's a huge conversation that revolves around um, personal boundaries, which I think members of our generation talk about, like being able to voice those and then respect them and acknowledge other people's desires. And it's so much harder in this setting because one, there's no digital sphere. There's nothing like, everything is very immediate. It's a very small town, and obviously these are much older men. Throughout the course of the film, I was torn on who I identified with more or who I sided with more. At the beginning of the film, you kind of associate with Brendan Gleeson's character, Colm, who wants to have peace and quiet on a very small island off the coast of Ireland and not want to be bothered anymore and really wants to pursue his art. But in doing so, he is unconsensually causing isolation and pain to Colin Farrell's character, Parik, who, like, he doesn't have many other people that he can fill that social void in his life with just because one person has that desire to have that space that's not a completely isolated thing that he's doing. Mm -hmm. It's causing a lot of despair and self-doubt and depression Mm -hmm. to Parikh's character. Mm -hmm. And so 
it feels like a commentary on adult relationships, but it also, I think, just touches on a kind of sadness that we don't see a lot and that, like, people our age say today that, like, a friendship breakup is so much worse than Mm. a romantic breakup because it's somebody that you have, like, formed your identity alongside and shared so many memories with. And so Mm. it's just, I don't know. I'm rambling. What it what I mean, I think to pick up on sort of what you were saying about it being such a small town and such mm-hmm. a small island and there are not a lot of options when Column decides to stop being friends with uh Parik. But at the same time, if you think back, they didn't have a lot of options on who to be friends with in the first place and mm-hmm. they were kind of forced into the same space. Mm-hmm and are only buddies because there's one pub and there's (laughs) nobody else of their age and you know Mm -hmm. that kind of thing it's I think a difficult thing that in my mind you maybe makes you more sympathetic to Colm because he never really had an option Mm -hmm. when it came to like who is he gonna be friends with and like who kind of speaks to the parts of him that he wants to express and he wants to develop. You know, he doesn't have a city worth of people that he could go out and choose to be friends with or not. But it's also embarrassing as hell and it does a lot of social damage because they were so synonymous with one another Mm -hmm. that it's not like, oh, two people stopped hanging out and you know, life went on, everybody noticed, everybody was asking about it, Mm -hmm. and everybody was kind of, it was like a divorce where, like, everybody was siding with one or the other, Mm -hmm. and that sucks. Uh, Parik's only other friends on the island, or the people that he interacts with, are his sister, the character Dominic, and his donkey. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, The animals that he and his sister have are the only people he can really hang out with afterwards. Yeah, I think for Parik, you feel awful for him because there's no real concrete explanation as to why Colm has suddenly decided Mm -hmm. that he does not want to be friends anymore. Nothing tangible enough that he can rationalize. Right, and that's so painful. But we can understand where Mm -hmm. he's coming from. And we see that, like, he's not the only one who feels that way about life in general, as Mm -hmm. we learn that Colm is feeling mortality, and Mm -hmm. he's wanting to create something significant and have something to his name besides just being idle Mm -hmm. on a very small island where everybody is idle regardless. But he's influenced by a lot of high culture art Mm -hmm. and wants to reimagine himself in some way that requires sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning, I sided with him, but at the end of the film, I kind of resented him Mm -hmm. a lot. Because his decision, while I do believe that people should be able to have space and boundaries, the way that it was handled, it's not Parikh's fault Mm -hmm. that he's having all this pain inflicted on him. And I would say... I don't think Colm was malicious, but I think it is still very hurtful Absolutely. what he did and mm-hmm. wasn't thought out. He he didn't regard Parik enough 
the mental effect that this could have on a person. Mm -hmm. I think what you bring up about Colm being kind of into high art and wanting to pursue this uh, more internal, uh, like higher calling pursuit mm. brings to mind, right? Yeah. Brings to mind for me kind of a parallel with Siobhan that I didn't necessarily make the connection with the first time, but mm -hmm. she is also very into these like internal and mm. like artsy things. She's always reading, but her way of finding a way out of this space mm -hmm. where there's really no options for her is to get a job on the mainland. Whereas Columns is like this incredibly like messed up self-mutilation scheme. Mm -hmm. And in the end, Parik has neither of them. Correct. But Siobhan has like created this space where he could still be with her and they could if be he chose to right they could still have this relationship whereas column has created this very untenable situation that has escalated into extreme violence on both of their parts mm -hmm. they, they have two direct conversations mm -hmm. with each other in the film where basically column silences siobhan by them having a mutual understanding of the despair that they feel or the desire for mm -hmm. something more. It's like Colm says at one point in the film, I do worry that I'm just entertaining myself while I stave off the inevitable. You can understand that, can't you? Mm -hmm. And you just see a very intense sadness on her face and she leaves. And yeah, they both have that sort of desire to get away. But it's also this obsession with high culture and high art mm -hmm. and intellectualism feels like kind of an insepid force from the mainland, which mm. also represents, I feel like, British culture or English mm. culture. They're talking about these great European thinkers and composers, and it's all things that take away from not only their community and themselves, but away specifically from Parik. It's stuff that he wants nothing to do with mm -hmm. throughout the film. He There's even a part where... Colm uses the word yet, and Parik says, yet he says, like he's English. Right. Mm -hmm. For me, okay, I yeah. have two points. Go. Two things that, that makes me think of. Mm. So two points it makes me think of. First of all, thinking of the way that Colm reacts, to me, seems sort of like a move out of desperation. Yeah. And But what I mean specifically is that he is overcompensating by cutting Parik out of his life completely because he feels yeah. so desperate, so unable to get out of this space that he's in mm -hmm. that he has to reject every single thing that is associated with it. Yeah. As opposed to Siobhan, who, like I said, is finding this more healthy way of getting out of the space. Mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting comparison because she then does not feel this need to reject Parik. I kind of want to backspace on that a little bit mm. because while while I do agree that it's a much healthier way, she similarly rejects Parik without his input or consent. She doesn't tell him that she's leaving until the day of. 
because she knows that he's the only thing that can make her stay. What I what I mean, I think, is like rejects in a really, mm-hmm. really existential way. Like Column cannot exist True. if Parik okay. is there. Like Column feels that his self is threatened mm-hmm. by Parik's continued engagement in his life. Right. Whereas I think what Siobhan does is out of necessity that she needs to be able to convince herself mm-hmm. she can go, but she still leaves space open for Parik to exist in her life. True. She does reach out and offer mm-hmm. a guest bed, but she also, there's a symbol that I kind of wanted to talk about. There's a mirror Mm-hmm. that she keeps looking in that is also referenced to several times in the screenplay that is cracked. And anytime she's sad, she looks over into that mirror and sees a cracked image of herself. The mirror then transfers to Parik after she leaves because after a certain very tragic cataclysmic event happens, he smashes the mirror and it becomes even more cracked and mm-hmm. fractured image mm-hmm. of himself. So it's there's a lot of these things of self-perception and despair being linked to one another and what that says about loneliness mm, and yeah. self-deprecation and hatred. It's also not a new or original thing to look <laughs> at a cracked mirror. Sure. Breaking Bad is like a thing that's really cool with it too, but yeah. I also wanted to talk about this central idea that they had in the film that they keep mentioning in the dialogue and i think it's a very interesting idea that not a lot of movies talk about and that's the concept of niceness Mm -hmm. to be nice to other people and whether or not that means anything ultimately there's a scene where column goes to confession which by the way it's been eight weeks since his last confession the first time he goes so once he cuts parik out of his life he's able to attend communion again and attend confession. But the priest immediately asks about why he's not friends with Parik anymore to comedic effect. And then Column says, well, that's not a sin now, is it? No, it's not a sin, but it's not very nice now, is it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, even if things aren't explicitly wrong, there's still things that maybe you shouldn't be doing. Mm-hmm. And there, and obviously there's a huge, huge confrontational scene in the pub where Colm and Parik have a heated debate over whether or not being nice is important. Important. The conversation they have basically surmises to, to, you know what you used to be? Nice. You used to be nice. And it's like, but now you're off hanging out with cops who beat their sons black and blue. You'd rather be friends with this guy, which, by the way, the cop is England. Um, (laughs) And he argues that music is something that lasts, Mm -hmm. that everybody knows Mozart. Everybody to a man knows Mozart's name, to which Pyrrhic replies, well, I don't. So there goes that theory. (laughs) Uh And this idea that the things that matter are the things that we create, mm-hmm. not the the bonding or the ways that we regard one another. So I think at the crux of it is this debate about uh, permanence and the like longevity and immortality in a certain way of mm-hmm. certain things like art 
versus our humanity to one another and the fleetingness Mm -hmm. of what it means to exist in a relationship with another person that will not be remembered or, you know, memorialized. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's why he cuts off his fingers? How do you mean? Because the body is something that doesn't last, but Mm. the things that you create Mm -hmm. are. And so there's this idea that this almost kind of nihilism that Colm has, where the things that we do now don't matter. The conversations we have about donkey shite or... (laughs) The, the kind things that we do for one another don't matter as much. So if he maims himself or mutilates himself, it's only temporary. Sure. It's only a moment of pain mm-hmm. that he then has a effective result against Parik to deter him and let him grade his music. But at the same time, it's also something that completely damages his art mm-hmm. and doesn't allow him to create because without mm-hmm. those fingers, he isn't able to play the music that he wrote. Right. And he ends up in this place of having completed his masterpiece, but mm-hmm. now he cannot mm-hmm. demonstrate it to anyone. He can't show it to anyone. Right. And it's kind of a moot point in a way. Right. And also I wanted to talk, the reason why I am so fascinated with the idea of niceness is it's something that we see in all of McDonough's works, regardless of how mean or how bitter or how violent all the characters are almost always we see a little glimpse of empathy or kind deeds done for one another mm-hmm. throughout their stories. And we see that happen direct, like right before the scene where he says niceness doesn't last or doesn't matter, we see this incredible act of kindness that Colin does for Parik when Parik is beaten by the police officer, Dominic's father. Without saying a word, Colin picks him up and make sure that he can get all the way back home. Mm-hmm. To which Parik starts crying out of just mm-hmm. absolute oh, despair. That heartbreaking. Because he can't say anything back to him. That that sever is still there, mm-hmm. but he wants it he wants to go back. But I'm like, I don't know if it is completely severed, because if he doesn't want to talk to this guy and cut him out of his life. Why is he going all the, he's going so out of the way to make sure that this person who he once regarded as his friend to get back home safely and treat him with human dignity and kindness. I think if you think about the ending scene too, where Mm -hmm. they both end up standing on the beach and they're somewhat removed in distance, Mm -hmm. but they're both right there looking at the same. And it's this, moment where you really feel, I think, the fallacy of what Colum is trying to do Mm -hmm. in removing himself from the society of others, Mm -hmm. in that, like, we can never not exist in relationship with one another. Well, and Parik falls for it, too. Mm -hmm. He is on this complete warpath now. Right. It's not outward, like bloodlust but it's this whole thing of perpetual cruelty mm-hmm. and reciprocal damage for the for the pain that will never subside mm-hmm. for him mm-hmm. I, and i was pointing this out too the part where he is burning down Colin's house he says and i'm not gonna check if you're there but he does he looks in the window and sees that column is there he doesn't stop burning the house or like tell him to get out 
but he does check to see if he's there because he does on some level absolutely care what happens to Mm -hmm. him it's sort of this kind of spiritual commentary on what happens when a relationship dies Mm -hmm. that you can never escape the feelings that you had for that person Mm -hmm. even if you don't love them anymore even if you don't want to be their friend anymore even if you need to cut them out of your life right that intimacy is such an integral part of the person that you are or have been that out of necessity almost Mm -hmm. you have to act on it when Colm gives Parikh the ride home Mm -hmm. you know even though he desperately wants Parikh out of his life there's that intimacy that they have shared Mm -hmm. for years and years and you can't just remove that No, and I just, I love that moment of hypocrisy where he pretends like it doesn't matter or it's not a part of him, but it's like, it absolutely is. Mm -hmm. That, like, these acts of kindness do have a direct effect on each other. Um, My favorite line, and I think the line that, like, really surmises what the whole piece is about, is Colm's second confession, where he goes in... And he says that he has killed a miniature donkey. And then the priest then replies, well, that's not exactly a sin now, is it? It's not, but it's not nice. The priest says, do you think God gives a damn about miniature donkeys? And then Colm says, I fear that he doesn't. And I think that's where it all went wrong. Mm, That is beautiful writing where it's where you had this whole high-minded thing. And the minute he realizes how deeply he's hurt, through his actions Mm -hmm. he comes back down to earth and realizes what huge damage that has done Mm -hmm. to somebody that he never wants to be responsible for yeah i think that kind of goes into your next point about despair Mm -hmm. parik is transformed basically by his despair at the end of this friendship and then the death of his emotional support donkey uh jenny who has sort of been this presence in his life. And it's this beautiful kind of thing where he has this relationship with Jenny that, like, nobody understands and Mm -hmm. people find kind of silly. And to kind of go back to this idea of niceness, Mm -hmm. that Parik is associated with dimness as well as niceness. Yeah, he's not a thinker. um, (laughs) You're one of life's good guys. (laughs) But it's this thing where niceness and kind of stupidity or like the way that niceness and dimness become sort of associated, whereas profundity equals like violence in a way. And profundity and like the creation of despair. I think there's a level of genuineness that Parik has with people. He hangs out with people because he likes them. Mm-hmm. He, he talks to you because he wants to talk to you. Or there's even a scene where Miss McCormick, which Jesus Christ, we haven't talked about her yet. When Miss McCormick comes and visits their home, he's the one who sa- says, it's like, you never want to talk to her. I always like talking to Miss McCormick. Mm-hmm. You hide behind the wall every time she comes down the street. <laughs> Going back on an earlier thing you said about Jenny being a pure relationship i've questioned that on 
previous viewings because it's not just Siobhan and Colm. It is also Dominic. It is also the barkeep whose name I'm forgetting, but it's all of these things of how they perceive him Mm -hmm. and how he has started to see himself. Things that he's never questioned about himself Mm -hmm. before because he's been content. He's been happy and nice. Dominic even says at one point that he's one of the nicest people. He's like, I thought you were one of the nice ones. One of the Mm -hmm. only nice ones. And it's this... It's this reflection that he has of other people telling him how he sees himself that causes him to degenerate and to do really mean things to others. Like, the point that I'm making, it starts with, right, the divorce from Colm, right? And then he starts hanging out with Dominic and Siobhan. I'm not sure I understand. Well, maybe you should. <laughs> um... And when he hangs out with Dominic, Dominic becomes the new kind of sounding board, but he's still moping the entire time and thinking about Colm all along. And then he even tries to invite Dominic into his home, much to Siobhan's chagrin. And Siobhan also says, I would rather let the donkey in than than Dominic again. So that's exactly what Parik starts doing. And he starts being less close to Dominic and using Jenny as the surrogate Mm. for Colm's friendship. There's this weird connection that I don't think I've seen other people talk about between Dominic and Jenny. They're the two characters that die in the mm-hmm. film, besides the guy's mom who was hit by a bread van. They're, they're the two characters who die in the film, and they're both equally treated like animals, mm. or as the, the dimmest on the island, or the most unassuming on the island, the most pure, but like... They're people that Siobhan doesn't want to let into the house. They're the people that are largely disregarded or mm-hmm. dismissed, but mm-hmm. that Parik is nice to, or are beaten and abused, or not let into the bar. They At the very beginning of the beginning of the nighttime pub scene, Dominic is told that he wasn't allowed back into the bar until April, which it's April 1st. So Dominic is treated like an animal, and animals are often associated with him. When Siobhan leaves, she also says maybe Dominic can take care of the animals now. Does it sound like I'm onto something here? Yeah, because it definitely. Sound, there's, there's something about him filling the void and almost dehumanizing other people mm. by going down all the way to Jenny. And yes, Jenny's death is a sad one, but I don't, I don't regard it as maybe as sweet as I did the first time because it looks like it's like a downward spiral. Sure. That now that Jenny is gone, he has nothing left to mm-hmm. anchor his humanity to. Mm, I agree. And so it becomes this prop that now is like removed and now the Irish Civil War starts. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it. I just, I kept thinking about why the two deaths that happened were Jenny and Dominic, and how Jenny's death caused so much commotion, but Dominic's did absolutely so nothing. Little. They didn't notice until, like, his his own father didn't even notice. M- Mrs. McCormick had to show him his body that was in the lake. And also, there's, like, this horribly, if you go back and watch it again, there's this horribly foreboding moment when... Parik is going to Colm's house after he buries Jenny. 
she's carrying the stick with the hook on it that Dominic found at the beginning of the film where he's like, look, I got a little stick with a hook on it. And it's a scythe now because she's walking around with a huge stick. And that should be a hint. How did she get that stick? And nothing. He's just completely walking past her. Right. Speaking of which, we really haven't talked about Mrs. McCormick when she is the titular uh, Banshee of Inishir. Mm, true. Because she is the wailing woman that portends death. She predicts the two deaths that occur mm-hmm. in the film, like, very explicitly. And she says, let's hope it's not you and your sister. It's like, why the fuck would you go around saying that for? It's like, that's so mean. Why the fuck would you say that? And she's mm-hmm. like, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to be accurate. Right. I think it's interesting because it's kind of a misdirect, very obvious misdirect in that you kind of have this idea of where the plot is going. Mm-hmm. And when Pirate goes to burn down Column's house, it's very easy to be like, oh, Column is going to be the death. Whereas that would be way too simple. Right, especially you, for a McDonough film. you know that that is not going to be the case. There's always a fake death But in at the McDonough same film. time, yeah. you think... But who else is it going to be? Right. It's kind of this interesting dynamic where the death that occurs and the death that does not occur, they kind of put into perspective the interiority or exteriority of despair. Okay. In, In that, like, we see columns despair very visually and very viscerally Mm -hmm. whereas dominic's despair is very internal and very hidden he does have a lot of lines that hint Mm -hmm. at how much sadness he's actually harboring but he plays it off yeah when he tries to get siobhan's affection and she says no he goes well there goes that dream I'm going to go and do whatever it is I was going to do over there now, which mm-hmm. is the last time we see him. Right. And there's also the part where Parik tells him about the music student that he made think that his family had died. Dominic just walks away in like utter disappointment because he said, I used to think you were one of the nice ones. And then Parik says, well, maybe this is the new me. Maybe mm-hmm. I never was. Right. It's this just awful degradation. But... Going back to Mrs. McCormick for a second, there's this weird visual effect that she has on any scene. She's almost always in the background. You can see her watching. Sometimes she's never even brought fully into view. But there's another symbol in the film that I noticed that she mimics or looks like, and that's the Virgin Mary statue that they're always walking past. The crossroads mm-hmm. between Parik's house and Colm's house. As they walk by, you see the Virgin Mary with open arms in a shawl, shawl that's bright blue, and it's a very iconic image, but she's wearing a similar outfit, Mm -hmm. but it's just black. And she's always walking behind people, and and they always hide from her. Whereas the Virgin Mary is watching over everyone, she is also watching Mm -hmm. over everyone. Right. And in but this in this kind of inverse sinister, kind of way. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Or is it inverse even? Is it some sort of commentary on church and state or... It's an interesting point. Or oversight mm-hmm. or moral kind of authority? Because mm-hmm. like, keep in mind, we don't like, we don't like the priest that much because he is hypocritical. He's not very helpful. 
He thinks that the sins that are most important to talk about are punching a police officer, where he's like, isn't that a sin? Shouldn't you be caring about that? (laughs) And it's like, not really, no. And so it's just this weird, like, juxtaposition of doom coming with, like, sanctuary Mm -hmm. and these two sort of, like, I don't know, McCormick is, is someone that you really have to pay attention to throughout the film because... She is obviously the titular character, mm-hmm. but also the Banshees of Inisherin refers to just the song that Colm has wrote, which is one of those other examples of McDonough defying interpretation, because he says, I think I just like the double SH sound. Yeah, that it's not actually a profound meaning. No, not at all. Not in the slightest. And we don't even hear the song uh, fully. We hear like parts of it, but we never get to hear Colm play it, so it doesn't even matter that way and a banshee dictionary definition wise right is a female spirit in irish folklore who heralds death or like destruction Mm -hmm. and who goes around like screaming which is also siobhan she is constantly warning people about the insanity that this is all devolving into and she's the one who frequently confronts both Parik and Colum, saying that, like, no, you have to leave him alone. He's serious about it. We don't want anything to do with that. But she also goes to Colum and says, as if we need one more dull, quiet man on Inishirin, you're all fucking boring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's like, no, none of you are special. Why can't we just get along? Why does this have to be so heated? Mm-hmm. Right. So, I I hadn't put it together, but Siobhan could be the other Banshee in the plural of the Banshees Banshees, of Inishirin. sure, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that is a pretty thorough dive through it. I know there's a lot more we would want to say, but, like, we we also want other people to kind of take away their interpretations and let us know about it. Right. Enjoy the film. If you want to let us know what you thought, you can message us on Instagram. Absolutely. Do you have any closing thoughts about the film overall? I think having spent this time really diving further into it makes me really want to go back and revisit it Mm -hmm. and kind of parse it out even more. Because there's so much to say about, you know, like profundity and aging and friendship and niceness and permanence and impermanence and... God. Yeah, God, and and this is all without saying, like, that much about the, like, allegory for the Irish Civil War. No, Like, yeah. we didn't even go into that. Not, not terribly, but, like, I just interpreted it to mean two people who are kind of on the same side, but have had some stark ideological separation mm-hmm. that happened, where, like, you know, the IRA was like, wait, why aren't we separating from England why are we kissing their ass now I thought the whole point of this thing was to get away from that and then you have homes being burned down which Parik does Mm -hmm. and all of these threats made throughout the film and I think you could say a lot about what this film represents about like the trauma of Irish history and different things that are sort of represented in the relationship between Colm and Parik and Siobhan. And it's so intensely layered as a cultural and historical piece, Mm -hmm. as well as just like on its surface, a piece about friendship and legacy. 
So there's so many ways to interpret it. If you took the Civil War out, the movie stays mostly the same. There is a conversation that Dominic's father has with Colum, how he has been hired to help out with the executions on the mainland. And he even says, like, we're going to execute about six or seven of them. It's like the Free States are executing the IRA boys. Oh, wait, or was it the IRA executing the Free State boys? Hell, it was so much easier when we were all fighting the English, right? Which has a lot deeper meaning, because I had assumed it was, like, the ideological differences of Protestantism or or Catholicism, but no, it's so much more minuscule than that. It's just, Mm -hmm. do we bow to the crown or do we not? Do we sign this treaty or do we not sign this treaty? And that was what the entire conflict, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, very sad fact, there were about as many deaths in the Irish Civil War as there were for the Irish War of Independence. Wow. It had about the same amount of casualties, That's just horrifying. completely on the side of Ireland right. this time. Um, yeah, and the absurdity. Yeah. That is both Colum's solution to this divorce and the absurdity of neighbors, brothers... Mm-hmm fighting each other over these tiny little differences. He even says, good luck to you both, whatever you're fighting about. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just such a profound movie. Mm-hmm. Which is funny, because it's a movie talking yeah. about, like, the merits of profundity and mm-hmm. uh, versus niceness. And it doesn't really come out on either side. I think it's commenting how... The factors that drive this division haven't really changed Mm -hmm. in about a hundred years. Ireland is still just, it's a tentative peace that is happening right now in Ireland. And with Brexit, whether or not it's ever going to happen or not, Mm -hmm. has the potential to start the armed conflict on a massive scale just all over again. A tentative peace is a really good summary for the end of the film. Mm -hmm. After the house has been burned down. Right. They're both on the beach. Does that make us quits? If you had stayed in the house, it would have made us quits. But you didn't, so it ain't. And I love the two lines of dialogue at the end of, I really am sorry about your donkey, Parik. I don't fucking care. And then it was like, and thanks again for taking care of my dog. Anytime. Such a good movie. <sighs> yeah. So, um, yeah. Do you think it's your favorite of his of now? Of his? Or do you that's prefer tough, another one? That's a tough thing to say. Uh-huh. It's so different from like In Bruges, which is probably was previously my favorite of his. They are so different as films. They are. That I don't know if I could pick one or the other. People have been wanting to be like, oh, so it's like In Bruges. I'm like, no. Not at all. Not really. No. It's much more about talking about feelings mm-hmm. the entire time. Yeah. I think In Bruges is a better movie. I might be a little bit more fond of this one now. Three Billboards is still definitely my favorite, I think. So, yeah. Well, hey, thank you so much for listening, and let us know if there's another film that you'd like us to go into this level of depth about and find out what's in the box. Uh, Amber, do you want to plug anything? Yeah, you can find me on Letterboxd at Ray Wood, R-A-E-W-O-O-D, and I'm at traveling mitten and girl on instagram you can find me on instagram at instgraham underscore four two that's instagram 42 or you can find me on letterboxd at t-r-u-n-d-l-e-t-h-e-g-r-8 that's trundle the great 
Uh, you could also follow us on Instagram at our podcast page called What's in the Box. That's W-A-T-S-I-N-T-H-E-B-O-X-D. Uh, thank you so much for listening. And as we always say, keep all your fingers attached. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time. Hey, jingity jing. It's Dominic the donkey. Jingity jing. The Italian Christmas donkey. La, 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 la.